So we're uh, continuing to make our way through the book of Romans on Sunday mornings together. 1980 was a significant year in my life. It was the year that Danelle and I were married. Um, I had been planning to go back to graduate school. The one flaw in my plan was food. Uh, Going back to graduate school wasn't going to put food on the table. You know, we were young. We figured somehow it would make it work out. But then a a job opportunity came up to work um, in the administration office at UCLA where I had just graduated. And so I veered away from grad school at that point and went to work as the assistant director of counseling services for the College of Fine Arts at the University of California at Los Angeles, which is a very long and fancy name for head gopher, a job that I did for a couple of years. And uh, one of the things that happened very soon after I started working at the college was that the beloved former band director at UCLA, he'd been the director of bands for many years, Clarence Sawhill was his name, he died. And there was a memorial service for him. And so various dignitaries from the college, of course, went uh, to this service. I actually rode over to the service, kind of went across town in L.A. to the service, riding in the dean of the College of Fine Arts car with the dean and the chief financial officer for the College of Fine Arts. And the gopher was sitting in the back seat. And on the way back... Um, the dean and the chief financial officer were discussing the service. Now, Clarence Sawhill apparently was a Christian, uh, came from a Christian tradition. The service was in a big Christian church, and as part of the service, I remember, they presented the gospel. And coming back from that service, the dean offered this assessment. It was all so negative, all that stuff about sin and death and rot. I think that's actually a direct quote. I I remembered it well, sitting in the back seat, cringing a bit. I had heard a presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ applied to the life of a college professor. He had heard a dark presentation of unnecessary bad news from people who seemed to take their religion too seriously. He didn't like all that sin and death stuff, which I didn't think they had overemphasized at all. He thought a good religion should be more positive for people. Now, the important people in that car up in the front seat had a vague notion that I was one of these Christian types, so they asked me what I thought of the service. I don't remember exactly what I said but I remember being very, a word that rhymes with service, nervous. I remember being amazed that people so informed about so many things in the world were so poorly informed about what the Christian faith, the good news of Jesus Christ, was all about. I probably said something like, uh, fine, thank you, and you? (laughs) I hope I I said something about the love of God in Jesus Christ, which was also mentioned and emphasized in that service. Is the bad news necessary? Can't we just say, I'm okay, you're okay, God's okay? 
Or, God loves everybody because we're all just so lovable. I remember our former office administrator, Barbara Mize, ran into something similar to this when she was volunteering at the Luis Palau Evangelistic Festival that came to Reno many years ago. She was working in the children's area. There was a big tent. And one of the main things that they did there was they helped children make gospel bracelets. We actually have kind of updated versions, and I think there's some actually on the table out in the narthex that you can grab kids and adults if you want. Uh, These are the rubberized versions that you slip over your um, wrist. Um, In the old days, we we did them with beads, and each bead represents something. There's the gold bead that represents God, that that in God we find the best of everything. By the way, you can also find these... uh, colors and a gospel presentation in these uh, gospel pamphlets that we have on the info board. If you'd like to grab some of these, we'll we'll bring out more if if, uh, we run out, where the the basic gospel is explained along the lines of these uh, five colored beads. The first one represents God. The best of everything is found in God. But then there's the black bead. This represents the reality of alienation. We're broken people in a fallen world. We're alienated from God. We find ourselves in a situation where we're separated from God because of sin. And as a result of that, death and a whole lot of other dark things are part of our reality. That's represented by the black bead. The red bead symbolizes the blood of Jesus, that Jesus Christ came and gave the necessary sacrifice that we might be reconciled to God. The the price was paid through the blood of Christ, red bead. The white bead symbolizes purity, and it tells us that we are washed white as snow, that in the eyes of God, we are pure because of the sacrifice of Christ, that, that sin has been washed away. And then the green bead symbolizes growth, that our response to all of this is to cooperate with God and to live in partnership with God as we grow into the people that he has designed us to be, as we grow in faith, as we grow in love, as we grow in hope, as we grow in our love for others and our willingness to serve them. And there's your, there's your five beads for the gospel bracelet. Now, what happened to Barbara was that she was helping kids make these bracelets and explaining the five parts of the gospel presentation that they represent. And a, and a mother became incensed that they were putting a black bead on, their, on her children's uh, bracelet. Now, just a, a quick little parenthetical remark. I would be sensitive to this if her complaint was racial in, in, in origin. In other words, she's saying, you know what? I have a hard time with a black bead because, you know, we, we live in a culture and we have a history of having this idea that the darker your skin, the, the lower you are as a person, as a human being. And, and the idea that black symbolizes the bad part, I have a real problem with that. Now, if that was her concern, I would be sensitive to that. And, and I want to tell you that we are sensitive to that. Black unfortunately has racial overtones, but they are completely separate. It also symbolizes darkness, the absence of light and that sort of thing. And it's an unfortunate uh, connection that it also relates to people's skin color. But, but that is not what this is about. And if that had been her complaint, I would have been very sensitive and would have been happy to listen and talk with her. I wasn't there actually. But Barbara probably would have been sensitive to that point. But that wasn't her point. Her point was, she was a white lady as I remember. 
her, her problem was not racial, but rather she said she didn't believe in sin. And she didn't want her children to be exposed to sin. Yeah, 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 I hear a couple of chuckles. Good luck with that. Do they go to school? Do they have friends? Are they in your family? Do you ever watch TV? Cartoons? Not exposed to sin? What do you do? Put them in, their cl- in a closet and close the door? Well, if they're in there, they're still going to be exposed to sin somehow. But those children went home with a four-bead bracelet instead of a five-bead bracelet. Actually, my wife, Danelle, had a similar issue. Actually teaching at a Christian preschool. She decided it'd be a good idea to present the gospel to her little preschoolers, you know, in a way that maybe they could understand, maybe using colors. So she had them make gospel bracelets. Next day, word comes to her through the director of the Christian at a church preschool that parents had complained about the black beads that had come home with their children and their children had explained it to them and they did not want that for their children. So the director of this Christian preschool located in a gospel preaching church told my wife, asked my wife, but really told my wife not to do that anymore. No more gospel presentations if it includes a black bead. So why should we have a dark bead? Can't we just have salvation bracelets that tell the story of how good God is and how good I am and how good it is that two such good people can get together? Certainly we must be age appropriate. Certainly we are always called to present the whole counsel of God and not just the dark and scary parts like sin and death and punishment and hell. Our purpose must never be to frighten gratuitously or in order to manipulate. But is sin a topic we ought never to discuss, especially with our impressionable children? The Apostle Paul seems to think this bad news about sin and death is necessary and important. He puts it right up at the front of his most comprehensive and systematic presentation of the message he has given his life and by tradition, we believe literally gave his life to proclaim. Today, we're leaving the bad news section of Romans. But we need to keep coming back. First of all, we need to keep coming back to avoid the danger of pride, what I would call God's people's disease. And God's people in every manifestation throughout history are subject to this disease. It's the disease of pride. If we only quote the nice verses from Romans and stop reading the first couple of chapters, we may well come to believe that we've been saved because we are immensely savable in ourselves. We're the kind of people God would want to save and Jesus would be delighted to suffocate on a Roman cross for. Come on, we're good people here, right? Nice people, People whose sins, well, let's call them oversights or mistakes. And everybody makes mistakes. Are quite under control, thank you. Is there any greater and more foolish pride 
than to think that we're the kind of people God simply couldn't do without. We need to keep coming back to this section to avoid the danger of pride, but we also need to keep coming back to this section to remember reality and to avoid the danger of foolish optimism, what I would call unbelievers' disease. Clarence Sawhill Memorial Service and the woman at the Salvation Bracelet Tent and those mothers of children, well-meaning, but, but not thinking completely clearly. Do you suppose these people read their newspapers? And here's a few sample lines. As woman begs for her life, Iraqis are shaken. University computers hacked. Stolen book turned over to reporter. Do you suppose they read these sort of things in the newspaper and then say, why do these journalists have to be so negative with all this theft and kidnapping and beheading stuff? Like it or not, sin is real. Death is real. Physical rot is real. And so is moral rot. This is the unhappy truth. And the gospel is truth. It begins with the unhappy truth of sin and death and it ends in the glorious and transcendent truth of salvation and life through Jesus Christ. So how does Paul the Apostle, inspired by God, conclude this important and difficult opening section of his gospel argument for our salvation? Well, let's read and find out. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Hear the words of God. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away and they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. These are quotes from the Old Testament, by the way. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would um, open our minds and our hearts to receive what you would give us here today. We pray that you would break down those barriers that we put up and that, that our culture is, is keen to help us put up against the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth that you give us in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the concluding question that Paul asks in this initial uh, section of the book of Romans. Are we any better? And the answer is no. 
Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin, Paul says. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Are we any better? But who is the we? Well, it includes Paul himself. He's just been talking about what other people have been saying about what he has been teaching. And that's how we works in the English language. It's me and others. That's we. It is Paul and the people to whom he is writing. It is Paul and anybody who ever reads his epistle to the Romans. It is anybody who ever preaches from Romans and anybody ever listening to a message from the book of Romans. How we answer this is very important. Who is the we? Who are not any better than the lost pagans, the prideful moralizers, and the optimistic religious people? To us, it is us. Understand? To you, it is you. To him, it is him. To her, it is her. To them, it is them. Understand? Most of all, to me, it is me. Every American voter and every American non-voter, every candidate for office in every state, on both sides of the aisle, every citizen of every country in every corner of the world, every churchgoer and every unchurched person, every Christian, every Jew, every Muslim, every Hindu, every Catholic, every Protestant, every agnostic and every atheist, every alcoholic and every compulsive gambler and every sex addict and every beverage company executive and every casino owner and every pornographer and every recovery center employee and every city government official who exploits and benefits from these people diseases, every victim of terrorism, and every terrorist. To anyone who ever asks the question, am I in any better position from God's point of view, on my own and apart from him, than any other person I know or know of? The answer that comes from Paul and the one that must come from me and from you and from us is no. We are not. So let me offer a couple of final insights from this passage from Paul. Here's the first important insight. We are under sin. It's like being underwater and unaware. The reality of sinfulness touches everything about us, including the way we think about sin. The reformers had a phrase for this. They called it total depravity. There's a nice phrase, don't you think? Stuart Briscoe, well-known Christian author, actually helped me out quite a bit in a book that he wrote and I read several years ago and his definition really helped me. He said this, the total depravity is not that at every moment we are as bad as we can be, but that at no moment are we as good as we should be. This reality of sin, this dark reality that's part of our world and part of us affects every part about us. Our actions, our thoughts, our words. Does a fish know it's wet? 
Do people naturally understand the depth and breadth of brokenness in us and around us? Forces more powerful than us control much of what we do. It's kind of like being underwater. Anybody ever been scuba diving or snorkeling? Scuba diving is actually where this would work the best. I've done it once in my life, and I did experience this very thing while I was scuba diving. Didn't realize. You know, you have the, the, the force of, of tides that cause waves and all of that. I never really thought about it before, but that same force actually operates underwater. There's surge under, under the surface so that the water is moving and you're in it. But you don't really realize it. I mean, unless you're close to something, you know, like there's some rocks or something and you kind of are whooshing by and you don't really realize it that you're being kind of cast about underwater when you're, when you're under there. They call it surge. How much sense would it make for us to argue from underwater about how well we can breathe and swim? I mean, it's an interesting thing, and I did experience this. You're underwater, and you think you know where you are in relation to the boat that you jumped off of, and you come up, you know, 20 minutes later, and you are far away, and you have no idea how you got there. Surge. The movement of the water that you were in. Didn't even know it. Being underwater, being under sin, it's like being under death. People have different amounts of air, here underwater, under sin, but everybody's supply is running out. I mean, if you got one of those tanks, you can stay underwater for, what, 20 minutes, half an hour maybe? Um, if you don't have a tank, maybe a couple, three minutes. Friends, we are all living lives of a couple, three minutes, and we're running out of air. And you'll realize that when you get older, more than you do now. People who say, I don't believe in water, still run out of air and drown. And they will still sputter and choke if they think they can stay where they are and save themselves. People who say, I don't believe in sin, still suffer its effects and inflict its damage on others. And if they think they can save themselves by looking within for new reserves of truth and power, what they will find are new tricks for self-deception. And if you try to tell them, they might well think you are being unnecessarily negative and certainly taking your religion too seriously. But if you pray for them, Maybe a voice stronger than ours from a Savior who is above what we are under will get through. What the psalmist and prophets said, something like this, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Psalm 14, one through three this is not a new idea. Paul hasn't invented something because he's just, well, a negative kind of guy. This is not a malady affecting only certain types of people. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. Psalm 5, 9. 
The poison of vipers is on their lips. Psalm 140, verse 3. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Psalm 10, verse 7. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. Isaiah 59, 7. It's not a pretty picture. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Psalm 36, 1. This may be the crux of the matter. They are underwater. Only God is above it all. Only he is in a position to save or to let them drown. And this does not register. They are sinfully unaware. So how do people become aware? What does God do to get our attention and turn us toward him? How about the law? Here's a second important insight from Paul here. We who are under sin, also we are under law. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. It's a negative truth. It it leaves us overwhelmed and underpowered. You see, the law cannot help us. And if we think that the, what the law tells, if I think that what the law tells me is that I'm a, I'm a law keeper, I'm a pretty good guy, I am not paying attention. I am rewriting things and I am imagining things. You see, the law has an extremely limited vocabulary for communicating to us. In fact, the law has a vocabulary of one Word. That's all the law can ever say to me or to you. One word, and that word is guilty. That's all it can ever say. The best I can hope for in my relationship with Mr. Law is that Mr. Law just doesn't say anything. But I promise you, Mr. Law is talking to me all the time, and rightfully so. And he's just giving me his one word, guilty. But you don't understand. The circumstances were guilty. Well, it was at a time when guilty. Well, but everybody else, guilty. That's all the law can ever say. And it can't help me do better. Actually, if anything, in terms of my relationship with Mr. Law, probably as much as anything else, if that's the only relationship I've got with anything transcendent, it's going to lead me to just give up. I can't do it, so why try? You've probably been in a place like that at one time or another, or you certainly know people who have or are. I can't do it, so I might as well not try. Being under law, we realize there's nothing we can say in response that will help our cause. And there's nothing the law ever says that really helps us to keep it. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that, words of Paul here in Romans, so that, so that we'll be able to justify ourselves, so that we'll realize what good people we are, so that, what is the so that that he offers? It says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Stop making excuses, the law would tell us. 
God would tell us through the law. Stop trying to justify yourself. It won't work. Stop trying to rewrite the law so you come out smelling clean like religious people in Jesus' day and ever since have been trying to do. But deep down we know it doesn't work. Because the law never says good for you. It only says guilty. And it speaks to me. The law offers no help. It's Being under the law is like being underpowered. It's like driving up a steep hill in a big eight-cylinder car with only one of the cylinders working. Push as hard as you want on that gas pedal. You're not making it up that hill. The car's performance only tells you something is wrong. It won't get you up the hill. The law is not for law keepers, but for law breakers. The law is for me. The law is for us. But here is the amazing, wonderful, positive truth in this. I mean, the negative truth is it leaves us overwhelmed and underpowered with no help. But here's the positive truth. It points us to the only source of real power and merciful help, Jesus This is what Paul called later in his first letter to Timothy the lawful use of the law. The law tells me I'm in trouble. The law tells me I need help. And I need help that is beyond myself. Where will I find it? From someone beyond the law. From someone transcending the law. From someone who can help me in spite of the law. How about Jesus? Maybe I could check out what he's all about. Maybe I could check out the gospel and see see if that provides the answer that I need. This is what Paul says is the right use of the law to bring us along, to point us and to take us to Jesus. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. And as our study guides say at one point, if it all got left there, let's just close up shop, go home, eat, drink, be merry, because tomorrow we die, like Kenny was telling us last week. But that isn't where it ends. This is where it just begins. But it's an important foundation. So are we, are you, am I willing to stand under this part of the good news of the gospel, the the negative part, the, the bad news part, the part that tells me who I am, a person in absolute need of what only God can give? Will I stand under? Do I understand this part of the gospel truth that God has given us? Will we can we stand under the truth that you and I are sinners and we have no good excuse and no human justification for this reality? It's on me. We've got to stand under this truth. Otherwise, the rest of the book of Romans will not read and be heard with the intended power that it has. Otherwise, we may get informed about how the Christian religion is designed and presented 
but we won't get gospelized. Then we will be ready to stand under the glorious greater truth of God's love expressed and accomplished in Jesus Christ. The power of God for salvation, which is the gospel. If we are ready to, to stand under this, a very countercultural thing to do, stand under the reality that sin is real, death is real, it's part of our world and it's part of my life. God help me. That's a great prayer, by the way. God help me. Then I am set to stand under the rest of the story, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, every kind of person, a new kind of we. The power of God for salvation, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Understand? Here we go. Lord God, we thank you for your word that encourages us and blesses us. Lord, I thank you for the reality that we live in. Lord, we know that it, it is a, a messed up reality in a lot of ways. Our lives are messed up in a lot of ways. My life is messed up in a lot of ways. But you are the God who comes to us in the middle of our being messed up with your good news and with your power for salvation that is in the gospel. Jesus, you completed your work for us. What needs to be done has been done. We can come back to you. We can live with you now and forever. Thank you. We pray all this in your name and for your sake. Amen.